Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the new podcast series, In the Vein. In the Vein is brought to you by students at the University of Colorado School of Medicine through the Student Life Advisory Committee and funded through the Medical Student Council. My name is Mackenzie Garcia. I'm a fourth-year medical student and chair of the Student Life Advisory Committee. We are thrilled to bring you this podcast in an effort to enhance vulnerability, create connections, and engage in meaningful conversations within our campus community. Our first episode will focus on racial justice within CUSOM and will feature Isabel Chatroux, one of our hosts, discussing racial justice with two individuals who have had a substantial impact on racial equity within our campus. The first is Dr. Regina Richards, who is the new Associate Vice Chancellor of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Community Engagement for the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Richards is also the former director of the CUSOM Office of Diversity and Inclusion. Second, Isabel will be talking with medical student Aluatosin Adabi, who will share her perspectives on racial equity within our school. We are so appreciative to both Dr. Richards and to Tosin for engaging in these conversations, and we hope that this is a meaningful conversation for you all as well. Thank you for listening and take care. Hi, Dr. Richards. Thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations on your new position. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to start out by getting your general take on what goals you think our campus and community should be striving towards. The vision is that really we are to build an inspirational medical campus community where diversity, equity, and inclusion is the standardized framework for schools and colleges, communities, research, and healthcare institutions to educate leaders. That means that we need to, the standardized framework is looking at the mission-focused areas of our campus, education, training, clinical, and research domains, and really utilizing a health equity lens and having programming, practices, policies that really look at, from an anti-racist health equity lens, how do we create a much more inclusive campus where we have eliminated social injustices that we have identified here on our campus. That we are an active participant and can show the impact of eliminating health disparities. Um, we have to utilize data to report measurable outcomes, systems of accountability, to attain a culture and a climate that increases sense of belonging trust, respect, and representation for our communities, both internal and external and beyond. How does that really break down? Is that we need to really develop assessments and evaluation to dismantle oppressive and racist, sexist, and gender-based discrimination practices. That is through, again, as I said, um, campus creating campus-wide initiatives, looking at and utilizing strategic planning, developing comprehensive education programs. Our Black Student Collective, our Black Student Collective have provided the School of Medicine and my office with a list of 87 items that really help expand our thinking around issues as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion for faculty, staff, students, and trainees. That document is now 
been utilized to create um, what we call a launching point to collecting data and really looking across the spectrum of our schools to say, what are we doing in terms of areas of um, admissions practices, scholarship opportunities, honors and awards, promotions, HR practices, admissions practices, as I said before. Um, how are we looking and assessing the clinical spaces for underrepresented minorities? Um, what's the research agenda here? How is it a research agenda that really looks at the social determinants of health? Who's accessing the space here? What are we looking at in terms of policies and practices around no tolerance for microaggression, discrimination, marginalization, oppression, as it relates to vulnerable populations. So it's a broad spectrum, but we certainly have some work to do. But if I had to sum it up, I would say that it's really about creating a campus climate and culture, utilizing standardized framework, of a health equity lens or an inclusive excellence lens, and really focusing on our mission-focused areas to evaluate, assess the systems, and eliminate discriminatory racist practices. Thank you for that. So just to make sure I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds like there is uh, both a goal of increasing inclusivity on campus, as well as an effort to change sort of the overall lens in which initiatives are being undertaken to involve a focus on health equity. And it sounds like you've collaborated closely with the Black Student Collective where you've used some of the problems that they've identified as a sort of launching point to direct some of your goals. Did I get that right? That is correct. And, you know, um, certainly we can, we can say that they are a problem, but really it's the challenges. It's the understanding from the student perspective, and it really provides us that, that guide. And uh, to further expand on that a little bit, we have developed a Chancellor's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Leadership and Community Engagement Leadership Council. And that council has representation from every school and college on our campus um, with representatives who have um, some FTE allocated to doing this work. And that council will be able to work collectively together to bring information forward from their schools, colleges, and programs that help us to set the initiatives for the work moving forward. Again, as I said, the Black Student Collective document was uh, a launching pad for us to really look at and start with collecting data and making some assessments of the systems and the uh, challenges within, within and on our campus. So absolutely, thank you. Yeah, it's always great to hear that there's engagement with students who you know are the ones on the ground experiencing the school's curriculum, experiencing the structure of the school, and also experiencing some of the pitfalls of it and in the healthcare field at large. So I think from a medical student perspective, it's important to know that there's close collaboration between the administration and the students. And so I know that you've had many roles in the past. For over two decades, you've held different positions on campus and been involved in numerous diversity and inclusion efforts. And I'm curious what challenges you've had to face in this work and if you anticipate similar challenges in this new role. So some of the challenges, I would like to sum those up um, as to, you know, everybody is not on board, meaning that um, if you ask, you know, very well-intended individuals about, um, you know, engaging in this work, some may think that um, these issues related to racism, bias, 
you know, the systems, the challenges, the hierarchy, power and privilege, you know, races and racism, do they exist on our campus and in our schools and colleges? You may have some people that say absolutely positively they do not. And so I often say in this work that, you know, it's certainly getting the support of what I like to term as resistors, people that really don't have the deeper understanding because it's not their lived experiences of the perspectives of folks that are from underrepresented minority backgrounds and or vulnerable populations to really help them understand the challenges, the everyday challenges that we face in just being a part of the campus community. Mm -hmm. And so number one, bringing awareness to the issue is important. Understanding that everybody may not be on board with the, the direction, and that does not mean that people are not well-intended. It just means that race and racism in academic medicine has not been a topic that has been discussed. There's not been a lot of explicit dialogue and or training related to these issues. As presented in the article with Dr. David Acosta, who is the Chief Diversity Officer for the AAMC, breaking the silence, he has indicated that medicine has not done a good job about talking about race. We've often heard that and issues related to that. We've often heard it referred to implicitly as the hidden curriculum. But we're encouraged to talk about it explicitly. We are seeing social unrest and social discourse across this nation. This most recent pandemic has shined a spotlight on the social determinants of health and the, and the disparities that communities of color and underrepresented minorities are experiencing. What we see in the news and media in terms of the social discourse and social unrest and the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others, and now with the use of video cameras, people are starting to really get a sense of what we have been trying to talk about for at least 400 years. And so we know that this work takes time, but we also know that we're dealing in times that our medical students and others are requesting that we address these issues now and not put them on the back burner. Plus, if we are a campus that is in the business of training delivering and conducting research for a healthier society, then we must address these issues. But some of the challenges have been, again, well-intended individuals who just don't, it's not their lived experience and it's hard for them to really understand the complexities of race and racism and how bias and other things contribute to them. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes me think of something else. I'm curious to get your input on, which is that there seems to be a new wave of folks who, unfortunately, this may be the first time that racial justice has become a priority for them, or even the first time it has been recognized as a problem in healthcare. And so for those people who are maybe starting to turn towards racial justice work for the first time, or who might want to become allies at this point, what kind of advice do you have for them, whether it's medical students or healthcare professionals in general, on the kinds of steps one might take in that direction? 
Uh, the first thing I would say is to know that <clears throat> we all have to be aware of what our biases are. We all have them. It is the way our brain functions. It is the natural way that we maneuver this world. We navigate this world based on our experiences, our um, associations, and our interactions. And again, it's well-intended individual. Bias is not about good person, bad person. It is about, based on our lived experiences, I'm not being redundant because I can't say it enough, that we have biases that affect our decision-making. So I would encourage people to, you know, become aware of their biases and what are their triggers. Take the Harvard IAT, Implicit Association Test, which gives you some awareness about your own unconscious bias. And then when there are decisions that are being made about admissions programs and practices, about research agendas, about just interactions with people who are different, it's through that awareness that hopefully will help you increase your knowledge and skills that will lead to behavior change. We have to talk about things explicitly. When we think about science and medicine, we think about the necessity of being trained to be excellent providers or excellent researchers or um, you know, administrators or whatever our roles are. We cannot do that without proper personal and professional development and training. It is the same concept when it comes to racist and anti-racist behavior. Educate yourself. Seek resources. Don't just ask the person in the room who is different or of color um, or coming from a vulnerable population or difference in whatever that capacity looks like. Don't ask them to educate you about issues as it relates to race and racism. Do your own work. There's anti-racist resources everywhere. Um, and so take advantage of educating yourself so that you understand how you enter into spaces. Learn what it means to, to microaggress. Dr. Sue has put out great information and research around these issues of racial microaggressions. It's not just race, though. It's gender-based. It's uh, sexual orientation. It is these areas of difference. It's ability status. It's these areas of difference that really feed in or perpetuate systems of racism, bias, discrimination, marginalization. And it is like with anything else in academia. The more you educate yourself, the more you understand. The more you understand, the better you become at something. And so from an ally perspective, it is it's understanding what your position is, what your privilege is, but also understanding and learning about others because the perspectives are so different. Understand the structural root cause of racism why it even exists in our country, and then educate yourself around why there hasn't been change, or at least minimal change, and that we're still out here advocating for the same things, the structural causes, the impact, the structural violence towards uh, individuals of color, Blacks, Hispanic Latinos, um, American Indian, Alaska Native, uh, vulnerable populations. Understand, educate yourself about the culture of poverty, 
and understand that just like medicine is a culture, poverty is a culture in and of itself. And so understand what that is. Understand the barriers that are perpetuated in our systems and then work effectively by advocating for change, being a change agent. Use your power and privilege to take a stance, the stance for justice and against injustices. It is the collective work, it is the collective advocacy and activism that is going to help change policies, programs, and practices. Hmm. So it sounds like your advice is for individuals to turn around and look at themselves and to take a moment to be introspective and to gain some humility in understanding what areas we may have biases and really learning about our biases and about ourselves and learning about racism, its history, why it's here and the components that are contributing to it. So that once we do take a stand, we have the knowledge and the foundation to be supportive and active allies. Does that sound correct? That is exactly correct. Okay, well, switching gears just a little, I'd love to hear about some of your personal experiences And I'm wondering if you might be able to think of a time that maybe you had a challenging interaction surrounding race in a professional environment or with a patient and what your strategy for handling it was. Hmm. I have lots of stories related to that. I would like to um, maybe do more generalization than... Um, because the generalization is the personal experience. Mm-hmm. When I think about my work as the director of the School of Medicine Office of Diversity and Inclusion and um, the, the inaugural office that was started in 2009, and I think about all of the students who have uh, students of color and or white students who have come into my office and talked about the microaggressions that they've received, that talked about acts of discrimination and stereotypes. For me, it's personal in that as a social worker, because I'm a social worker by trade, community social worker, I know that racism happens. I know that we are operating in systems and structures that have these barriers. But when I hear from students and I hear from faculty of color about the challenges that they have, for instance, if it's a physician who walks into a patient encounter, an African-American Black student, Hispanic, Latina um, student who uh, walks into a room, a patient encounter with a white patient and are told that we don't want, I don't want you to treat me, I don't want you to touch me, then what it does, and they come and they talk to me about it, what it does is motivates me to say, wait a minute, how can we talk to and work with our leaders in these institutions to develop policies and practices that are no tolerance, number one, and number two, allows for that individual to feel valued in their personal and professional life. Um, When I think about presentations that I've done to various different departments, various different uh, divisions here on campus, and as I am walking into the buildings, maybe not having access to the building, and I think about how so many people will walk by me 
as though I'm invisible. And then when I do finally get access to the building, to the, this was obviously pre-COVID, to the building, to the environment, to the classroom that I'll be doing presentation, the look of surprise on the audience's face that I am the keynote speaker. And I know that comes because of difference, because of the visible diversity that I have. Mm -hmm. um, and the you know, juxtaposition of being an African-American woman trying to access space and then turning around and folks realizing that I am the keynote speaker for the day, talking to them about race and racism. I'm going back to our students and the pain that they feel when they are discriminated against by uh, someone in our system or some act in our system. You know, that is a tough thing to do. But the way that you fight is to fight the powers that be. You're not old enough to know about that song. Well, after I said it, I thought, oh, that's, that, that's a song in my life. <laughs> that, that was a genre in my life. But I say all that to say that um, everybody is not always ready to change. The readiness to change is a process and all institutions don't have it. All, all very well-intended individuals don't have that. And so when I encounter these kinds of situations where I am hearing about our students' experiences, I hear about my colleagues or trainees' experiences, then you know, I have to be able to manage my own emotions and look at the greater picture. That's not always easy, but that is what I'm called to do. Well, I appreciate you sharing your experiences with me. And as those who don't have those lived experiences, you know, it's important that we take the time to hear them. So thank you. I want to also say, and I give this oftentimes in my talk, is that, you know, when you walk into white space, if you are a person of color, if you're a Black person, it's back Latinx, American Indian, Alaskan Native, um, if you are Pacific Islander, you know, you could be Vietnamese. Um, with COVID-19 and so much xenophobia that has happened around that, when we occupy spaces where there's such whiteness and majority status is so present, and we are, are invisible in those spaces, it is a very impactful feeling. Um, when Dr. Zimmer came aboard here as the Senior Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, you know, her and I were talking one day, and I said, you know, one of my goals for this campus and in doing this work is that not only do we give voice to the voiceless, but at CU, we can see you. And that is specific to underrepresented minorities. Again, when we walk and inhabit majority space, people of color are not seen. We are not acknowledged. I'm not saying always, I'm saying that is majority interactions. That is what I hear from my peers. That is what I'm, I mean, my colleagues, that is what I hear from students, is that they want to be recognized for who they are and not um, excluded because of who they are. So making the invisible visible is so important in this work, but it is not easy. It is a challenge in and of itself, but we have to value diversity. 
there needs to be congruency between the statements that we make in the programs, practices, and policies that we have in place. And that is challenging in this work, but it is doable. And I'm so grateful for the support that I have had along the way and the mentoring that I've had along the way that have allowed me to occupy those white spaces and being oftentimes the only person of color or a black person in that room, but being treated equally and respectfully. And I try to model that in everything that I do because it's important. Hmm. And Dr. Richards, do you feel like CU is on the path to making the invisible visible? Definitely. I've been doing this work on this campus for a few decades, and I can say unequivocally that absolutely CU is on the road to doing that. Here's what I also want you to know, that there is activism, there is advocacy, and there is governance. And when we talk about these issues related to inequities and social injustices, the advocacy and the activist pieces are the right now. But if we want to move and we want to make sure that whatever we are doing is strategic, systemic, and sustainable, we have to allow time for the governance as well. And that sometimes takes time and processes and iterations. We don't always get it right the first time. But what I do know for sure is there is a commitment to doing this work, to receiving the support necessary, and to change the course of what was previous um, and dismantles these systems that have been um, perpetuating oppression, marginalization, racism, sexism, and uh, gender-based discrimination practices. Well, I'm glad that you have that outlook for this campus and our school, and it sounds like you'll be a key factor in driving this progression along, of course, with our wonderful students and faculty. And it was such a pleasure getting to speak with you today, Dr. Richards. I want to thank you for all the work that you do and, of course, for joining me today in this discussion. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the work that everyone is doing to make things a much more just culture and um, in the elimination of health disparities and social injustices. And I want to leave you with one more thing. And that is that we are all key in this work. It takes not only a village, but it takes collective, thoughtful, committed individuals to collectively make a change. So I'm very proud that I am here and being able to engage with individuals like yourself and others that are working to make a change. Well, I appreciate it. And I'm honored to get to interview you today and to get to hear your perspectives and experiences. And I'm excited to follow your work in the direction of uh, CU School of Medicine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a good evening, Dr. Richards, and take care. You do the same. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tosin. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Hey. (laughs) Hey. Um, So I'd love to start by just having you tell us a little bit about the formation of the Black Student Collective, and what your role in it is. Yeah, um, for sure. So Black Student Collective, um, I'm glad you asked that. So in June of this year, um, around June 3rd, that is when the Black Student Collective actually assembled. 
It was in response to the recent killings of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, um, Tony McDade, and Elijah McClain. And that has sparked national conversations surrounding unchecked violent acts against Black members of our community. And as students, we could not remain silent. Um, we could not remain silent. And we needed a community. Honestly, we need a community more than ever. On top of being kind of virtual and separated and isolated, everything that was going on was just so loud. It was so loud. And then as we were looking to the school to see how they were going to kind of respond, especially because um, Elijah, may he rest in power, that happened right there in Aurora. And we couldn't wait any longer. Um, so that's, that's kind of how the Black Student Collective was assembled. My role, um, everyone in the collective um, from that time we assembled in June 3rd, 2020, they're all student leaders. Um, they're all um, trailblazers because of their lived experience. Um, I think it was just quite an opportunity to be in that space with everyone. And I currently am the co-chair, I guess I call myself that still. Um, we're still figuring out roles and figuring out how we're moving forward collectively, given that all of us are in different stages of our medical school kind of careers and education and our capacity um, is honestly pretty limited. Oftentimes we see a lot of um, black identifying students from schools kind of being tasked with the burden of speaking their truth, being transparent and formulating solutions. Um, but we're, we're figuring it all out. We're taking it one step at a time, one day at a time. Um, and yeah, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. And yeah, we really appreciate you uh, giving your time to us today. I know that you are spread amongst many different initiatives at our school and um, your involvement in the White Coats for Black Lives, as well as the Student National Medical Association, um, has also been another way that you've sort of spent time and dedicated some of your efforts. And I'm curious what your thoughts are in, in the ways that these organizations sort of differ, or at least how your role has differed between them. Yeah. Um, so White Coats for Black Lives, that became kind of official nationally recognized organization in 2015, actually. Um, it was actually on Martha Luther King Jr. Day that that became like an official national medical student organization. So their mission is to dismantle racism in medicine and promote the health, well-being, and self-determination of people of color. And White Coast for Black Lives was kind of a byproduct of the the national movements and the rally cries that were happening in the fall of 2014 after the deaths of Michael Brown, Eric Gardner. That, that was when White Coats for Black Lives started. So we have a chapter on our campus as well. And my second year of medical school, um, I joined the executive board for that chapter. So that's kind of like my, my view, my role in White Coats for Black Lives. And after my second year, you know, we pass it off to the class coming in and we continue kind of that um, sustainability with our leadership. So the current executive board members, especially during the time when the Black Student Collective was coming together. Um, Candace Zephyrs um, was a really huge component in that. And I'm also thinking about the third years as they enter third year as well, and Helio and, and his role, um, super crucial to kind of the formation of the Black Student Collective. And earlier in June, as the nation was battling um, the COVID pandemic and the racial pandemic, White Coats for Black Lives um, issued this hashtag, Action Speak Louder, 
and it was a campaign to kind of encourage and promote medical students to to hold their um, institutions right and their faculty accountable. So that's White Coats for Black Lives, and then with SNMA. So my second year, I was a part of the White Coats for Black Lives Executive Board, and some of my peers were a part of the SNMA Executive Board. So that's like um, Kitty Branch and Stephanie Nuago and Yalao Gundikbe um, and Desiree, and I'm flashing on her last name. SNMA, the Student National Medical Association, that was founded in 1964, right, as a subdivision to the NMA, which is the National Medical Association. And the NMA in its time was radical because the medical society hadn't really given a lot of space to the voice of um, African-American physicians. So when the NMA started as a collective voice for African-American physicians, they're really leading the force on justice in medicine and the elimination of health disparities. And SNMA was kind of a subdivision of NMA. And SNMA really um, pushes into ensuring academic excellence for Black medical students, right? They have the National Leadership Institute. Even this month, like October 4, 2020, they have this virtual electoral advocacy forum where they're trying to educate folks on the electoral college, educate folks on voting and what it looks like to kind of stay informed and even register patients to vote. So Mm. during the formation of the Black Student Collective, the executive for the SNMA, and I believe that was Promise, and I'm also blanking on his last name, but hey, this is a CU Institute's podcast, so we all know who <laughs> Promises <laughs> was was leading those efforts, right? So it was this kind of generational thing we were seeing with the Black Student Collective, having the exec boards for SNMA and White Coats for Black Lives from that class of 2023, as well as having the class of 2022 and the class of 2021, right? I think the big thing that really ties both organizations together, as well as CUSOM's Black Student Collective, is our lived experience, right? Navigating through this world as Black identifying medical students, right? As minoritized medical students. Great. Thank you so much for that overview. Um, Yeah. And brings me sort of to one of the things I'm aware of with the Black Student Collective is that you uh, worked to create sort of this list of different areas or challenges within our campus that need attention. Is that yeah. correct? We call them recommendations. But yeah. Recommendations. Okay. And um, we spoke earlier on this episode with uh, Dr. Richards, and, and uh, she talked about how that list has actually been really helpful Um for the Office of Diversity and Inclusion to take and sort of launch from that point of areas to focus as well. And I'd love to hear a little bit from you about the creation of that list and maybe some some of the challenges and successes with, with coming up with that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, challenging. <laughs> we can start there. Definitely challenging. Um, it took about, I want to say seven weeks, and I don't have the dates right in front of me, but like seven to eight weeks to actually get that document in its version that we felt ready to kind of share with the rest of the world, share with the rest of the Anschutz campus. But it was definitely a collective effort, not only from the members of the Block Student Collective, but outside of that with our allies, um, Mike Levy, Lauren uh, Heary, um, and folks from C-Star and folks from ODI and exec board for White Coast for Black Lives and SNMA. Like it, it took all of us um, writing that out. 
I think it's important to recognize and bring honor to the folks who have been dedicated to uplifting the minoritized student experience on our campus, right? So prior to the Black Student Collective forming, there were students and faculty dedicated to, to promoting that, dedicated to transparency, dedicated to transforming the curriculum to acknowledge medical racism. But overall, the recommendations, at least the promise we were filling these recommendations with was to really augment the advancements already being done in CUSOM, right? To try and usher in inclusive learning um, in a culture that bring that breeds holistic decisions, right? So this is even part of the preamble for the document that we wrote. And that hope mm -hmm. is to expand the collaboration of the community, right? Expand collaborations with the patients we serve and all of this to kind of push into systematic, lasting and meaningful changes. So there's a lot of components to just an individual, right? What they identify as the unique situations that they call their lives. Like we are multi-hyphenated. And I think in that essence, um, our, our curriculum, our policy, all that we call our medical education has to also um, kind of model that and mirror that. And for us, some really big things were transparency, campus police accountability, right? The bias in mm -hmm. grading, right? Thinking about recruitment and faculty promotion. Um, those are really huge for us because we, we borrowed from our lived experience. We borrowed from the things that have created barriers in our education. We borrowed from the painful memories that we had and really poured it into this document. So um, that's a little bit of background of the creation of um, the resolution, right? And the title of the resolution also really sums it up, right? The title was Action Items for the Reduction of Racial Injustices on the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. And I also think mm -hmm. it's noteworthy to understand that we came together as medical students, right? The PA students were also coming together, like the dental students were coming together, the PT mm -hmm. students were coming together. Like our campus prides itself for our interprofessional, interdisciplinary kind of avenue of learning. And each school um, was also pushing into this and looking at the faculty, looking at our administration and saying, what are we doing? The world around us is suffering. Elijah McLean died in Aurora at the hands of police that we say protect us. What is happening here? We cannot be silent. And not only that, we have to move forward with solution and move forward to usher in healing for our students and for the community that we call ours. Um, so that was, that was pretty huge for us. Um, and all of that went into the document that was created. Okay, and, and what is the future of this document? Ah, great, great question. Um, honestly, this is great timing because um, Helio has actually been organizing the work behind the scenes to keep folks updated. I think as students, one thing that we've been kind of yearning for is transparency, um, transparency with the process, transparency with changes. And I think that's something that we're trying to model, right? So in July was when we actually released the resolution, right? The action items for the reduction of racial injustices in our campus. And since that resolution, the chancellor has kind of required a representative from every program to come together, right? 
and the council was then named Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Community Engagement Leadership Council. And mm-hmm. this council is supposed to be working on identifying action items for the Black Student Collective Resolution. And, and I imagine Dr. Richards probably already expanded on all of this. So please let me know if I'm just repeating things at this point. No, okay. this is great. You're, no, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is, this is some of the stuff that we're collecting and also trying to kind of um, send out to the folks who signed our resolution and support, right? Some other updates that have happened. Um, on July 29th, Denver Health no longer um, reports estimated GFR data that's corrected for race, which was huge, right? right? I think as a campus, we don't actually talk a lot about the biology of race um, and how race um, in its early um, construction was this um, this illusion almost, this social illusion that was handed to science and scientists then had to provide the evidence to kind of back it up. And we're still living in that world, right? So even the GFR that we use in, I can imagine almost every setting in the hospital when you get your labs back has this correction for race, right? So Denver Health no longer reports that. Um, There has also been proposals sent out to honor School of Medicine faculty that have prioritized service outreach and advocacy. I think it's important that we we put value to the things that matter to us. I know that we are um, pretty strong on our research skills, on getting that qualitative, quantitative kind of analysis out there. I think in the same realm, our community-based participatory research, our outreach, our advocacy, our promotion of health equity needs to also have value, right? So that proposal um, was sent out. I know there's also been surveys that have been sent out to kind of gauge um, medical students' beliefs on race and the biology of race. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some pretty big things. And I know that the Chancellor's um, Council is continuing to grow and form, and they had their first meeting on August 6th, actually, um, to start addressing phase one of the resolution, right? So things are moving <laughs> and they're not silent. And I, and from our first meeting too in the Medical Student Council, right? I know the Medical Student Council is also thinking about ways to support the Black Student Collective and trying to ensure that um, our efforts are sustainable as some of us are graduating in 2021 and some of us are transitioning from second to third year and time becomes something of a luxury. Um, And that's another thing that's also kind of going on behind the scenes. So there's a lot of moving parts to this. And like, I think Mm -hmm. a really big thing that we talk about in the collective as well is like, how do we stay true to the history of this, right? (laughs) So that those before us and those behind us can kind of see how we went about this. So it doesn't seem like an elusive process, but it looks like something you can reproduce if it calls for it, essentially. So I'm really glad that we're talking about this on the podcast because it provides an avenue for people to kind of hear, have their own comments, have their own ideas and, and leave with something practical. Absolutely. And it sounds like there was an incredible effort amongst many different groups of people to sort of create this list of action items. And then um, I'm hearing that it's, you know, been sort of put into motion already in terms of actually addressing some of them and making sure that that moves forward and and that it doesn't just uh, kind of float away into the abyss. (laughs) Yes, yes, I completely agree. Um, It was a collective action. 
I feel oftentimes when we look at groups, right, you see the word Black Student Collective and you just wonder, like, what actually happened? Who's in it? What's going on? And, -hmm. like, there are details, right? There are stories in the details. And I think a big thing also as a collective was for us to kind of acknowledge what was going on for us and to acknowledge what we were seeing happening in in real time, right? Um, Right. We, we didn't want to get stuck in the false reality of because there is no evidence and there's an assumption that there is no issue, right? Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, and that sort of brings me to the, the fact that many students are turning towards racial justice work for the first time right now. And it's both, you know, a blessing and an unfortunate reality that many people weren't um, as invested before this was brought into sort of the spotlight due to recent events. And so I'm curious what advice you have um, for those students who are kind of turning towards this for the first time and wanting to get involved, wanting to become allies and, um, and help, help be a part of, of creating this uh, history. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Cause honestly, a lot of the conversations I'm having with my peers across the nation, um, it's been centering on how and where to start. These are uncharted territories. And I think it's also important to not kind of burden our um, unrepresented minoritized students with it. But yeah, if they choose to rise up, then like, yay. I think a big thing too is for faculty to, to stop asking, do we support our students here? And to instead ask the students, do you actually feel supportive, right? I think Mm -hmm. in medicine, we we pride ourselves with objective inquiry, but we don't realize how often this this power dynamic can silence students, silence our voices, right? Um, There are centuries of undoing and unlearning. The history of medicine isn't immune from racism. It is embedded in the same system that created the we are the people, right? So this dehumanization that has been at the forefront of our racial pandemic and COVID pandemic has taken different forms, each era, each century, each couple of decades, right? It could look like the denial of a personal narrative, the denial of a generation, the denial of life, as we're seeing on the news, Black bodies on the streets. Um, (laughs) I think for students, we have to hold our institutions accountable. I think we have to take the step to model for our faculty that we want to learn and not only learn, that we want to think about solutions. I feel that we don't get a lot of opportunities to actually think about the issues and to start curating solutions. And I think that's something we have to kind of take the baton and stand up and rise up for ourselves. I think also as students, um, we have this rare opportunity to um, augment the voices of the student, students who have um, historically been silenced, the students who have a story to share, or the students who need to sit in peace and heal. I think we have this unique opportunity to offer our ears and to listen, to hold space, to rise up, get out and vote, and to vote for human health, right? Um, mm-hmm. 
I talked to Sabio about this a lot, how we're, we're not healthcare students. We are human health students. I don't want to be a healthcare provider. I want to be a human health provider, right? Mm-hmm. So with this question of where do you start, as a human health activist or as a human health activator, we start with activating our peers, activating our institutions to join in, highlighting the necessary base building of community organizing. We start activating the perspective, like learning about the mistakes that happened in the past so we don't repeat those same mistakes, right? Those are some of my thoughts around starting. And then you let me know if I actually answered your question or if there's like more you want to dive into there. No, that's helpful. (laughs) That's helpful. Um, And you mentioned, you know, listening to stories and listening to Black voices. And I'm curious what some of the things are that you wish other medical students knew about your experiences. Uh, Okay. This is this is this is a good question, um, and one I one I want to answer. <laughs> yeah, if you don't if, take your time, if you don't want to answer it as well, it's of course okay. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, and I, really, I'm pausing now because I'm just trying to think of of something to share because um, my life has saturated with it that it takes me a second to recognize was that actually was that not okay. Because I'm just so used to things being pushed to the side, people telling me it was no big deal, people telling me that I have to be professional when my when my experiences have been um, consistently invalidated, that seeps into my subconscious. So <laughs> yeah, I guess what I'd want medical students to know about my experience is that if you're feeling uncomfortable, um, Imagine feeling that every single day, every time you walk into a patient's room, you meet your preceptor for the first time. Having to be on that guard in that tension, sitting with it on a daily basis. I feel like I I breathe that in and out. Even in the moments where my preceptor is, is struggling to describe the patient in the next room as a black African American, uh, whatever is going on, and I can feel how comfortable they feel, and I and I try to to ease that for them. Or the moments when I'm in an operating room and um, the case that I just so happen to sit on with, and the doctor goes on um, to fill the space with his thoughts on what's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement. And he stares at me, almost waiting to see if I'll respond, if I'll dare to say something else in this agreement. I mean, like, we have to, we have to try. If not for ourselves, for our patients. A lot of us enter this field because we care about people. And I think we've been doing harm. I know I took a pledge to do no harm. And I feel we're not acknowledging the racism in medicine. And because of that, we're doing harm to our patients because we're going to repeat those same mistakes. The data is out there. Black, indigenous, 
identifying people of color, Latino people, they are disproportionately affected. These negative health outcomes have been assigned to, to race. And we have to ask why, really ask why, and start to see people where they're at so we can bring in the healing. And we're looking to our institutions to teach us how to do it. I'd rather make a slippery, slippery slope mistake in a PBL setting with my peers and then learn from it than do it out in the real world when someone's life is on the line. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and for stepping into a more vulnerable space there. I appreciate it. And I think our listeners will appreciate hearing from you. And to end um, sort of on a global note, what brings you hope looking forward? What brings me hope looking forward? I don't want to say I'm hopeless because <laughs> I'm not. Um, I think the conversations I have, my tribe, hearing from my friends who are um, in engineering and IT talk about racism and how it's not okay. My friends who are um, in law school talk about it. My friends getting their MBA, hearing people from all these different institutions that our lives are intertwine with talk about racism and not only talk about it but push into it and ask how can we do no harm because this is a a multi-system issue right and I think in medicine we have this unique opportunity to model that especially because when someone steps into a clinic my patient walks into a room they're coming in with all the intersections of their life and that's compounding their health outcome I think that's bringing me hope because it's a both-and situation, right? We all have a role to play. And for some people, it might be the start of their role. It might be the start of them recognizing. For others, it might be the start of transitioning from theory into practice. Um, For me, it looks like um, pushing into a solution and putting an emphasis on solution. We need the folks who are doing the research, the folks who are in the community um, and prioritizing the community and centering on the community in their research. We need the folks who are making podcasts, right? We need the students who are learning, like we need it all. And I think most importantly, we need to push into solution because every hour, every year, every decade that we don't, we are just adding to the lives lost. And really the year's loss to folks. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Tosin. And thank you so much for all the work that you do. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me today. I look forward to, to hearing more and where this goes yeah. for the podcast. Definitely. We hope to stay in touch and, and follow this work throughout the course of it. Okay. Sounds good. (laughs) All right. Have a good morning. Yeah, you too. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to In the Vein. In the Vein is brought to you by the Student Life Advisory Committee at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Our Student Life Advisory Committee podcast team includes Joel Ayers, who does much of our editing, Mary Fulbrighi, Vivian Rajaswaran, and our podcast hosts, Isabel Chautreau, Megan Foy, 
Alec Mansour, and Katie Turner. And my name is Mackenzie Garcia. In the Vein is funded through the Medical Student Council at CUSOM. Thank you so much to all of those who have contributed to this podcast, including those who participated in our interviews. We hope that this helps to continue to build our campus community. Take care.